Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Albert, who is a PhD student at John Hopkins University, working at the intersection of international relations, political theory and sustainability studies. His dissertation develops a theoretical framework drawing from complex systems theory and critical political economy to map the converging crises of the 21st century, and in particular, the crises of global capitalism, energy and the earth system, and to illuminate possibilities for world systemic transformation over the coming decades. His future work will investigate counter-hegemonic movements, including degrowth, eco-socialism, transition towns and indigenous sovereignty, and consider their potential for creating alternative political economies as the crises of global capitalism and the earth system intensify. Mike is also a Zen Buddhist trying to discover a balance between radical activism and spiritual acceptance, between struggling for a better world and finding love and acceptance amidst a world in the throes of collapse. This was a really touching conversation for me and um, I think I've decided to leave it unedited. So let's see how this, how this plays out. Yeah, join me in welcoming our guest, Michael Albert. Let's start with one of the questions that you suggested we explore, which is quite a large one. Um, and that's based on your work and your research and your thoughts. Where do you think we're headed right now as a species? Yeah, so it is a big one. And uh, my work is pretty heavily driven by this question. Uh, and I try and counterbalance it with uh, a sense that I really don't know, and we don't know, but at the same time, we can, I think, based on the trends that we're confronting, uh, determine more and less probable uh, scenarios for where we are headed. And I, I'm most interested in the period up until 2050, 2050, 2060, because I think this is really the critical window, these next 30, 40 years that are really going to determine the fate of the planet for millennia to come based on what we do in the next 30, 40 years, and will largely shape whether, you know, humans survive in the long term. Uh, but uh, I think that it's not looking very good. I, you know, I, I agree with uh, others uh, who have fairly uh, dire prognoses of the situation. Mm. Uh, I think that a collapse of civilization, I mean, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said collapse is almost nearly inevitable. I was definitely very 
sympathetic to Jen Bendel's argument mm. in that regard. Uh, I mean, there we are facing this uh, collision uh, between an economic system based on infinite growth and uh, the carrying capacity of the planet, uh, most with climate change being the most uh, serious symptom of that. Uh, and so I, but I think that there's a couple different ways a collapse could happen. And at the end of the day, we don't really know uh, what that means, but it would more or less be an intensification of a kind of slow spatio-temporally uneven process we're already seeing today with many parts of the world uh, being hit by climate disasters and not really being able to recover. And so it kind of strikes in this uneven uh, way. But I think that collapse, uh, some sort of major uh, breakdown in the global economy uh, as a result of uh, combined fuel shortages and financial instability, uh, which would propagate the initial shock, whether in the energy system or some other sector of the global economy, could lead to some kind of major depression in the next decade, which a lot of economists are worried about that, that the 2008 crisis, the, the crisis management measures adopted there really only staved off the worst, but have built up the conditions for an even worse crisis uh, further down the line. And uh, and it's a lot of uncertainty there, but it's certainly feasible that there could be another major crisis where the uh, authorities will try and implement the same basic crisis management techniques, but they will more or less fail to revive growth and stabilize the financial system as they were in 2008. Then this could mean a prolonged uh Depression, which could involve uh, major oil shortages. Again, there's a lot of uncertainty there. A lot of it depends on uh, forecasts of uh, of shale production in the U.S., uh, whether oil is going to be able to keep rising uh, from the U.S. And But if, if it doesn't, then that could mean really critical oil shocks uh, to the global economy, which would more or less undermine the whole infrastructure, the whole global supply chain infrastructure on which our way of life is currently built. And uh, I don't think it would be an overnight thing, but it could be a relatively rapid collapse where over a, a, the period of a decade or two, we will need to dramatically localize, relocalize our food uh, and energy systems and economies so that they're not so reliant on oil-based, far-flung supply chains to meet our basic needs. I'm surprised to hear you talk about the next 30 and 40 years because I've been feeling a real sense of urgency and imminent uncertainty when I've been um, dipping into some of the research that people like yourself have been doing and collating and sharing. Uh, and yeah. this, this sense of, um, when we talk about collapse, looking at all the interweaving systems, so like you're saying about... Um, locally grown food, but also microgrids of power in certain communities that may be more or less resilient. So for instance, I'm uh, originally a Brit now living in Barcelona. And I know that in Spain, for instance, there's lots of places which rely on locally grown, irrigated, greenhoused produce, which is probably going to be better uh -huh. placed to serve the needs of people than, for instance, the UK, where 70 or 60% of the food is imported. And so I'm wondering with, yeah. with the 30 to 40 year time frame when we're already seeing so much of the global south already being desperately affected by the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, how come your time span 
stretches to that? And what are some of the things that might um, make that time frame shorter? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying that we're seeing these impacts now and they could they could strike much faster uh, than many of us anticipate. But at the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, and I mean, I do have a global north bias in the sense that's where I come from. That's, you know, and it's closest to my heart and where I live and uh, most, you know, most of the people I know. And so there is inevitably that bias there. And yeah, it would definitely look different from someone living in any different part of the world system, global south Mm. uh, or wherever. But at the same time, I think that it is, especially when thinking about climate change, uh, I think when, like I I started with this issue of, uh, you know, possible financial collapse uh, exacerbated by uh, energy shortages, because I think this is possibly the most near term uh, major crisis scenario that we're facing, but it's not at all certain. Uh, so if this were to happen, then, I mean, we will be confronting significant climate impacts. You know, we're approximately at uh, one degree, 1.1 degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels as a global average. And some say we might hit 1.5 by 2030, but that would be a relatively fast uh, estimate. Uh, by 2050, we might hit 2.4. But again, there's no uh, there's no certainty there. But so when looking at climate change, it's really once we get to the 1.52 degrees that I think at least countries in the global north are going to start to be uh, stressed uh, mm. much more significantly uh, by climate change. And so understanding, I'm I'm trying to understand the way that uh, even impacts at 1.5 or 2 degrees. Uh, which are often considered to be safe by many, or not safe, but at least manageable. Uh, we can adapt yes. to that. And of course, there's much uneven for low-lying uh, island states in the global south. Mm. Uh, many African, Southeast Asian countries, uh, it's potentially a, a death sentence for many of these people. Uh, and two degrees could leave hundreds of more millions of people vulnerable than in 1.5. Uh, but at the same time, I think even countries in the global north that are are supposedly resilient to these shocks, I think once we also look at instabilities in the financial system, uh, uh, the the erosion of our energy base, uh, do this do this process of net energy decline, which scholars like Richard Heimberg and Nafiz Ahmed have done a really great job analyzing. When you un- when you look at the way that these climate impacts, even at 1.5 or 2 degrees, are going to interact with these other ongoing instabilities, then I think that can create an explosive cocktail uh, for major uh, economic unrest. If there is some sort of economic depression, uh, all these climate impacts are going to make it that much more difficult to restore growth, to restore investor and consumer confidence. So a collapse could in this way become a a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. That's why I think understanding this this window in the next 30 years as climate change is going to be intensifying and h- understanding how it's going to interact with these other instabilities is important. And it is important to, to recognize that some major near-term shocks are, are likely, but uh, whether it happens in 2020, 2030, mm. uh, yeah, we need to, I think, think about the different possibilities. Mm. 
Yeah, sorry, I feel like I kind of put you on the spot with that one because, of course, all of this is so uncertain and it depends on all manner of effects happening. I was reading yesterday, this is probably not the thing you want to read before you're going to bed, but about methane burps. And if they start happening, the methane that's at the base of the ocean in certain places where there were previously glaciers, yeah. especially in the northern part of the world, um, if enough of this gas escapes, and it doesn't need to be that much, then it could precipitate massive change within months as opposed to within decades and I was reading this and I'm thinking fuck first of all do I want to be reading this because there's absolutely zero I can do about this um and and second of all if I do have this knowledge what does it mean in terms of one's life and I think this is where I'm kind of curious to tap into what it means on a human level on an interconnected living organism level um so us as well as just being a species being a part of this living world what does it mean to confront the enormity of this climate breakdown um and how do we begin to start understanding our role what it means for instance i'm going to throw out some questions here but what it means to come to terms Mm -hmm. with what's happening what it means to in the face of all of this uncertainty to live a meaningful life like these are some of the the questions that are keeping me up at night um And I think also, especially given your interests in the fields of things like psychotherapy and psychopharmacology, what disciplines Mm -hmm. can we draw from um, to help us unpick some of these questions? Take any of those that you want to you want to start. Yeah, sure. Sure. I'll go for it. I mean, (laughs) I'll, I'll start just quickly with this methane issue. I mean, I'm not I'm no expert here. There is a lot of uncertainty on whether this can. Uh, I mean, like with all these uh, mm-hmm. dimensions of our of our planetary life support systems, there's tons of uncertainty whether this kind of uh, rapid burp uh, that can dramatically rise temperatures and more or less collapse uh, our agricultural uh, systems and end civilization as we know within years. That seems to be, according to current scientific evidence, it seems to not be the most likely scenario. It seems more likely that it will be a slower release, uh, potentially over centuries. But again, there's a lot we don't know. And it seems that in the Earth's history, there have been, there have potentially been these massive methane burps. And, and so I think because there are a lot of these near, near term human extinction people that Jen Bendel talks about in his mm. paper who come to this certainty. Again, they, it, it becomes a different form of uncertainty that, oh, this methane's gonna kill us all. In the next couple decades, there's nothing we can do about it. And uh, it seems like many of them at least have been able to find some some positive way to live in the face of that, which is great for them. Uh, <laughs> because, yeah, ultimately, it doesn't, I think it doesn't, uh, I mean, it does matter, of course, in some way, whether, I guess, whether we are fucked by methane bombs in the, <laughs> in the coming decades, like that does, that does matter. But, but I mean, yeah, more importantly, how do we, how do we live in the face of this predicament? Whether, like, even if it's going to be a slow release, uh, even if climate change is is going to st- progress at a nonlinear but not rapid acceleration, uh, maybe reaching five degrees by the end of the century, which is more what the, kind of the upper end of what the IPCC currently predicts. Like that would mm. still be catas- That would still be a catastrophic. Uh, end of civilization and life on the planet as we know it. And so regardless of whether these most dramatic scenarios come true, yeah, I mean, how do we live with that? Uh, I mean, for me, uh, I found, for me, 
Buddhism and also other other contemporary writers who are thinking about the implications of collapse. I mean, Jem Bendel is one of them. Also, Carolyn Baker is someone who's I consider an important teacher for me. Uh, really writing, I mean, writing stuff that I've found really inspiring uh, and resonant, which is this idea that collapse is really, I mean, it's a teacher. And in some way, it liberates us, or it can liberate us if we would let it. Uh, the specter of the specter of collapse, I mean, uh, in the sense that it kind of liberates us to let go of a, a lot of the bullshit that we carry around with us all the time, and to really focus on what uh, matters most, and to live the kind of lives that we want to live, to not be so concerned about what's what's going to be the most promising career path for mm. me you know like i don't know if i don't know what's going to be happening in 10 20 years you know like if you know whether getting some kind of s- stable career that's going to enable me to build up you know my savings and get a pension <laughs> if you know when you when we have when these kind of when this long term planning kind of breaks down because of uh, these crises we're facing, then, yeah, I mean, the the question becomes, how do we live now? How do we live the kind of lives that we're capable of living uh, and really waking up to the wonder of this world and of life? But then that also requires facing the incredible uh, pain and suffering and grief of this moment. And that's something that Carolyn Baker writes about in a very powerful way. Uh, how do we grieve? How do we how do we use grief as a tool to really wake up and to become more alive uh, to our moments? Uh, to overcome the numbing to collective pain, to the pain of the earth that, uh, and even to much of our own pain, uh, that is the product of our culture and our way of life. And uh, so I know this is a big question, uh, but. In general, waking up, opening up to grief, I mean, that's something that uh, has been a really a, a practice for me in the last couple years that has really uh, changed my life in a positive way. And in many ways, I feel uh, I feel more alive and vital than ever, uh, I think largely in part thanks to to these kind of practices uh but uh i know that i'm also gonna and that all of us are also gonna be facing periods of despair uh as well if if we're really gonna be honestly facing that but i do i have developed the confidence that we can face that we can move through it and ultimately come to a more vital and nourishing place where we are more fully alive and more fully human. Mm, that's really, um, it's very touching what you're saying. And I think also, because I've been thinking about this recently, um, this, this sense of anticipatory grief. So on the one hand, depending on how much direct exposure we have to the impacts of our actions as, as a civilization, you know, we can see on videos or in films or footage or documentaries species being wiped out, fires blazing in parts of the world, 
that um, we may or may not have visited. So, for instance, I've, I've spent some time in my early 20s and actually since in the Amazon basin. And so it touches me to see all these places in a desperate situation. It, it affects me. But this this thing that, that affects me more on a day-to-day basis is just the sense of enormity of what's happening and also what's to come. And I think it's it's difficult on the one hand, to want to lean into it without also dipping into um, the fear of the unknown and generating something like you talk about the specter of what we're experiencing. And there's there's the reality of what's happening and then the possible outcomes, the possible ways in which this can unfold. And so I'm curious to ask when you're meeting your grief, when you're stepping out of the numbing, what are some of the practices that you engage in that you find helpful to be able to be with it and to hopefully move through it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a challenging question. Uh, I feel like it's different for everyone in some ways. And I, I have a friend in particular who I know she, she really struggles with this because it's just so heavy for her. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, and there's more, there's more of a fear. Uh, and I think a lot of people feel this fear, you know, if I go there, I'll never come back or it's too much. I'll be, I'll drown in this. And this, this has come, this fear has come up for me too, particularly, uh, when I've dipped into my anger, like my, the anger that I feel towards, uh, towards this culture, towards the, the authorities that are, uh, placing us on this, uh, trajectory to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, it's not, it's more of a diffuse anger, but when there have been practices where I've dipped into that and that it's something that I, I'm, I struggle to feel more regularly. Uh, but, but when it has come, come up during these practices, it feels so intense. And I, and it just this, this tension, this shaking, consuming me and I have to stop and uh and you know take take what I can manage and feel it dip into it know that it's there touch it be like okay I feel you and to not judge it uh but then to to not necessarily feel like okay I have to completely uh be absorbed in this or or overwhelmed by this at this moment and so Carolyn Baker talks about titrating in this sense, mm. and the, the same goes with grief, that we open, we open to the best of our abilities in that moment and to, to, let it, to let it move us, to let it consume us as much as we can, but then also to be gentle with ourselves uh, and to move through and away, away from it when we need to. Uh, and I mean, this also, I think, uh, more broadly, I mean, in order to be able to feel it in the first place, and this is something very common that's uh, been emphasized, especially by Joanna Macy and all the people like Carolyn Baker who have been strongly influenced by her work, uh, is that really uh, coupling this grief together with gratitude uh, for for what is beautiful about life and and what we have in our lives that makes them worth living that gives mm-hmm. us meaning from the simplest daily acts to uh 
more profound beauties that we encounter in the world. Uh, really having that as a practice, uh, I think, is essential. Without that, there's really no way, I think, to, to also be able to, to touch the well of grief or the anger, or these other difficult emotions. And so I think there is, there is a feedback where they can sustain each other and help nourish each other uh, and, and balance each other, having uh, both gratitude to deepen our joy, our connection to what makes life worth living. Well, and that, I think, gives us the strength to touch these more difficult, challenging aspects. You really can't have one without the other, I think, mm. which is what people like Joanna Macy teach. Uh, mm. And so, I mean, in terms of concrete practices, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning this stuff myself. You know, meditation is, is crucial for me. I couldn't, do, I couldn't do what I'm doing without a regular meditation practice. Uh, and then Joanna Macy also describes a lot of rituals in her book, Coming Back to Life. My local Extinction Rebellion group uh, did this ritual, the the, uh, what do you, it's called the, the truth mandala, uh, which gives a way to embody the different emotions we carry to express them to everyone enters a circle, picks up an object that represents a certain emotion and, and acts it out and lets it move through them. And for me, mm. this is, and the group is really powerful practice to enable us to touch these things that we are most often numb to in our daily lives. So this was, this is a powerful practice. And, uh, Ritual in general is something I've became, I've become really interested in the last couple of years, and I want to learn more and go deeper into that. Mm. Yeah, I love I love the ability of ritual to um, take us into these spaces where suddenly so much more becomes possible. Because I think in the scripts of our day to day lives, when we when we look at um, how we should behave and what's socially acceptable and the rest of it, it's it's so easy to just remain on these very tight tracks of behavior, and everything else that doesn't fit on those tracks get gets thrown off the sides um yeah yeah and so to find these ways i think especially in groups because i tend to kind of shy off and do my own thing whether it's five rhythms dancing or singing i'm, I'm a musician as well so i sing my grief that's the only way i can nice. access it really it's uh but it's quite a solitary thing and i think what you've just described it's um there's a power in coming together with others and bearing witness um and i think also there's something in that to I don't know how you feel about this I'm curious what you think about this but this sense of things being too much and the feeling being too much or dipping into it and it overwhelming us and I think my sense is that when we're witnessed in potentially dipping into an overwhelming state but we're witnessed by others it somehow contains it and allows us to have the support mm -hmm. to be able to let it flow through somehow um, as long as the space is well yeah. held and it's facilitated in a in a compassionate and skillful way. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which kind of brings me to, I want to ask you about your experience with that, but connected with psychedelics. Yeah, go for I it. I know that that's a very powerful tool for helping facilitate. So um, so actually I saw you at Breaking Convention, which is a fascinating conference. You actually talked a bit about psychedelics and psychotherapy. And um, yeah. I would love for you to maybe pull on that thread and talk about how you perceive that to be helpful in situations like these. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm, uh, in terms of practice in using psychedelics, I, I'm, uh, I haven't, uh, experimented with them since, I mean, it's been at least, uh, five, six years now. Uh, it's something that I do want to 
begin to uh, work with again uh, probably in the next couple of years. But yeah, like you said, I think that these kind of uh, collective rituals, ways of getting in touch with our grief and also our gratitude and as spaces of healing and reconnection to each other and to, to the earth, I think these are the kind of spaces where uh, psychedelic use can potentially be very powerful. Mm. Uh, of course, indigenous cultures in the Amazon and elsewhere have had these kinds of communal traditions uh, for a long time. And I think that, I mean, there are already similar kinds of traditions cropping up, much of them drawing from these traditions, like there are now ayahuasca circles that are practiced regularly in, in New York and other <laughs> major Western cities. Uh, but I think that we can also, yes, think about how can we create new rituals uh, using these psychoactive techniques, uh, using these these plant medicines, and I, I'm I don't have too much. I haven't thought very deeply about what that would look like exactly, but I do think that psychedelics have this potential. Just they, you know, they, there's clearly this unique capacity to really shatter the the standard uh, ego narrative that we carry with us and to open us uh, to this deeper sense of self and connection. And for that to be healing, uh, as I mean, current research on psychedelic therapy is showing, there needs to be this context, this holding, holding space, like you were describing, for that to be a, a meaningful uh, or for that to facilitate healing work as opposed to some kind of further disintegration or further trauma of some kind. Uh, and so, yeah, how to, how to do that in a way, how to combine, how to learn from these ancient psychedelic rituals while also uh, creating, creating new ones that are relevant for us in this context uh, in a way that can help deepen our connection to the earth, but also deepen our, our commitment to action and service uh, to do what is most important to to exercise our energy in the most effective way possible to uh, alleviate suffering for humans and other non-humans. Uh, so yeah, I I would really like to to explore this further in the in the coming years. But in terms of what these rituals would look like concretely, I'm sure there are other people already doing this. I just don't know about them, but I'd love to learn. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've read quite a bit of the research around the use of psilocybin in particular for anxiety um, and fear in end of life um, yeah. cancer patients, and and I think one of the things that I'm aware of as I read this research around the climate breakdown is that it kind of puts into a very new perspective our reckoning with mortality, both of our own and of any. Yeah. legacy that we might leave behind and that of our species and yeah. other species and I'd never really considered mortality in this way before um, and I think that connects me with this with this psychedelic research this idea of okay and when confronted with a huge amount of 
uncertainty and one's own mortality and grief and um and a sense of not knowing what's happening and we're not really very good at feeling into uh lack of certainty and and yeah we we sort of struggle to find meaning to explain everything that happens around us and I, so i think in in a situation like this which is so extraordinarily complex to have tools such as psychedelic um plants that we can turn to when facilitated well and whatever other tools you might have are probably quite useful i do wonder mm. about just dropping everything and retraining as a psychedelic therapist or something <laughs> i've thought about that too honestly uh especially last year when i was having a crisis where you know i'm on the job market and just like oh man i don't know if i'm cut out for this academic path yeah. and the world is collapsing is that really you know how, how i want to spend my time have the most meaningful life uh, I mean, yeah, I think that we all need to be healers in some way. Uh, and it doesn't mean we all need to train to become psychotherapists. I think that's at least what I kind of, I came to this kind of conclusion that we all need to develop these skills in some form uh, to be able to help facilitate and hold space for others in their grieving process, uh, to, to be there for others uh when you know when they need it because this is just going to become the the more ordinary lived reality in which most of us are living uh in a time of great anxiety and suffering and death and yeah we're all gonna be called yeah to take on these sort of roles to the best of our abilities uh and it's kind of daunting you know i i still you know, can't I can't say that I have the full confidence to really be able to uh, to really help someone stabilize and work through when these when these very difficult emotions come up. Uh, so yeah, that's something I'm still I'm still learning, and uh, yeah, especially once once I'm done with this PhD, I really want to to engage in more, I don't know, workshops, exercises, mm. stuff that are focused on that to, to help develop my confidence to be there, uh, to play that role for mm. others. Yeah, the sense of um, participation somehow. Because I think that it's one thing doing the research. The research is so important. But then I think about all of the different things that are required by communities to thrive. And it's it's a diversity of skills. And I think... A shared vision and so I do wonder about this because I'm, I'm so I, I speak at conferences and I've written a book about psychology of online behavior and I'm currently in Barcelona finishing a three-year fine art degree oh it's always, actually it's not a fine art degree it's an atelier okay, method cool. traditional realist art and I'm standing there now I've only got two more terms left and I'm standing there thinking what the fuck am I doing <laughs> or you know when I speak at conferences and I think well and there's this constant present question which is when you're someone who has the freedom, when you have the luck to have the freedom to be able to do things that you enjoy, um, how does one make the choice as to how one uses one's skill? So like, I'm a firm believer that, or well, I don't know belief is the right word, but I, I'll say it from a point of experience that in my times of deepest trouble, things like turning to music or to dance or to a loved one, or to food, or the senses. Turning to my senses are the things that give me the most sense of connection and aliveness. And so for me, it's not crazy mm -hmm. that one should train in art 
or in music or in theater or dance or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um because it it creates a way in which people can overcome their thresholds to, to journey into a state which maybe they wouldn't let themselves experience otherwise that somehow is held for them mm. and so i wonder with that kind of stuff or from your perspective creating um insight and research and context and information that's going to be valuable how do you then take that um as a person wanting to participate and to serve and to help others how do you take that and and enable people to thrive with the stuff that you've already used how do you make it actionable like actionable how do we make the knowledge of say what we're doing to the climate and and what we're facing how do we translate that into action to to sell there or are you talking more about something else i guess maybe it's more a personal question so like as Mike Albert, who's finishing your PhD in December, yeah. how do you then use everything that you've learned in January <laughs> to to help? Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, for me, I'm I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, beyond beyond just teaching in university, which I hope to be doing. Uh, I mean, engaging in stuff like, I mean. Uh, activist movements like Extinction Rebellion being part of that, I feel like that's given me uh, some kind of greater wholeness, being able to participate in that and and try and be able to communicate through that uh, the urgency mm. of the situation uh, to the broader public and to and to share in a community of other people who who share that urgency has been uh, something really meaningful uh and i think through that uh not just the activism side but also this regeneration this regenerative culture side which is really important to extinction rebellion uh creating these uh these grief spaces or these kinds of events uh where we can discuss these emotions and have these sorts of rituals uh to help bring each other together uh, to to really go deeper into this stuff and like you say to give us a bit more strength or confidence to be able to go somewhere that is otherwise very very challenging uh, to potentially maybe f- push us further outside our our comfort zone into these dark areas uh, while feeling confident that the community the people we're with uh, are grounding us in some way. And so I guess that's for me personally how I am trying to make it actionable because, I mean, I'm, you know, academia is is in many ways the opposite of mm. uh, actionable. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've had a part of my, I guess, my something of a crisis in the last few years, especially the more I learn about uh, the the scale of the climate emergency has been, you know, yeah, like, what am, what am I going to do with this? And mm-hmm. I think, uh, for me, I think I'm, mo- I'm most drawn to this sort of grief and healing work and being he- helping to create spaces that can bring people together to work through this stuff. But also, for that also to be a, something that would feed back into activism. I think creating these kind of spaces, something I feel very passionate about, uh, which is largely why I feel like I really need to learn the proper skills, facilitation to 
to be able to help guide people, especially when really difficult things come up. I, I feel I need to be confident in my ability to help people through that. Uh, and, but yeah, or organizing these things in a way that feed back into activism, not, not keeping the two separate. Mm-hmm. I think they both can feed back on and enrich each other. I think activism too often lacks that, that regenerative side, which is something that has really, uh, something, I mean, one of the reasons why the Extinction Rebellion movement has really appealed to me, uh, over the last couple of years, I think that, you know, it's not, it's not perfect by any stretch and it's very, it's very diverse, many different views and some which are not necessarily in accord with all the ways in which I understand or how I think we should be mobilizing, uh, to deal with the crisis. But there is this strong emphasis, emphasis on the importance of greed or sorry of grief mm-hmm. also greed but more importantly <laughs> for the regenerative side uh reconnecting with grief and gratitude as part of the cycle of activism through which we reconnect through our to ourselves and really what what gets us up in the morning why we're doing this mm. uh activism in the first place and then using that to strengthen uh, and then feed back into the actions and and so to work through this kind of cycle of action re, uh, release regenerate back into to action uh, and that's where I'm at now I want to be able to keep uh, learning and being able to contribute to that more effectively in the coming years uh, and then also to inform various local transition initiatives uh, initiatives trying to develop ways to make their communities more resilient to the coming crises. Uh, it's a way to both build physical resilience while also deepening community, which itself feeds back into resilience. So, yeah, these are the kind of things that I I feel most drawn to mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how I'm going to try and make this, translate this into action. And so I'm curious, with these ideas about how you might live moving forward, how has your understanding of the situation changed the way in which you live life now? Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a tough question. <laughs> I think, I mean, in some kind of somewhat crude sense, <laughs> it's made me put a lot more f- focus, put a lot more prioritization on uh, meditation and the need to have a really dedicated, disciplined, um, meditation practice, both to develop a certain kind of strength, a certain kind of stability, Mm. uh, and also to touch something, uh, within myself. I mean, something that we all have, uh, that is really the core of what we are. And it's something it's something timeless in a sense. It's a space where there's no gain and loss. Mm. Everything just is. Uh, and so to be able to touch that and to not attach to that or seek some escape in that, but just to have that and to know that that's there, uh, I think just the more I learn about this, like what this is why I said earlier, I mean, I can't imagine how I'd be able to uh, face this stuff without intense cognitive dissonance or intellectual uh you know what's the word compartmentalization Mm -hmm. where i you know where i'm 
where I know all these things intellectually, but I'm just not integrating it into the rest of my life and, and really being able to feel it and let it transform me. Mm. I think meditation is really one of the main things that has enabled me uh, to to do that more effectively. And so, yeah, it's really it's really led me to put more put more emphasis on that. And other than that, yeah, I feel like it also, it makes me, uh, perhaps naively, I don't know, we'll see, but it, it makes me a little less stressed about finding an academic job because <laughs> I feel like, well, if I don't, then, you know, I'll just go, uh, join some, you know, I'll join an eco village or work on a permaculture farm or do something that is healing and that can help deepen my connection to the earth and to people engaged in like-minded projects and trying to uh, regenerate, heal themselves, the community uh, and the earth. And so, yeah, making me, it just gives me the sense that, that, that other career stuff, you know, the ambitions I had about Mm -hmm. trying to be this, uh, you know, this famous academic who's going to have some world changing book. I can't, I can't, I definitely have not totally gotten rid of that by any means. I still, (laughs) I still carry these, these dreams, these ambitions, but I think I take them a little less seriously Mm. at least, Uh, which I think has been healthy for me. Yeah. And I think with these things, you never know how things are going to play out because we, well we've mentioned Jem Bendel a couple of times and he came out with his paper Deep Adaptation last year and it was rejected for mm-hmm. inclusion in the journal that I think he was editing anyway and it's now become one of the most downloaded papers on this subject um, and mm-hmm. he's suddenly become thrown into the limelight for a paper that he thought would probably end his career as it stood and has just jettisoned <laughs> him into a whole nother um, level of of authority, which is extraordinary when you think how these things can take us into un, unusual paths. I wonder um, mm-hmm. for people listening, because with the last two seasons, I would ask with uh, a couple of questions, including what's your greatest hope and your greatest fear. But I want to ask a different question this season, and the question is going to be, um, what one insight? Or advice would you give to people who are listening to this conversation? Oh man, I mean, I feel I feel kind of uh, strange uh, uh, answering that kind of question. I mean, I'm, I'm a young I'm a young person. I have much to experience in life and wisdom to acquire. But uh, in terms of any kind of advice I would give, I mean. If people are feeling reluctant and afraid about really facing head on the crisis that we're entering and what that means for us emotionally, uh, materially and spiritually, if there if there's some sense of reluctance, like like we were kind of talking about earlier, a sense that, oh, we'll be we can't handle this, we'll be overwhelmed by it. Uh if if people are feeling that then i would just want to try to inspire or encourage them to whatever extent possible to to uh to have faith 
in both themselves and in life, uh, to have some faith that, that we can indeed face this and find renewed strength and meaning, unlike what we've been able to experience in our lives to date, to really find a new depth uh, through waking up. Uh, and this waking up inevitably involves in deep encounter with pain. But, I mean, I don't know. How else can one experience life in its fullness? So, yeah, I think that that would be something I would say. But, of course, you know, I'm still in this process, and I know that I'm going to face immense challenges along the way. But I have at least developed a deep sense of faith and confidence that it's not only the only way forward, it's, it's a way towards some kind of, of wholeness and satisfaction, I think, even amidst this crisis that we'll be facing for the rest of our lives. Well, I have nothing to add. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And um, poignant. I'm actually stumped. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about uh, what has your journey been like in, I guess, learning about the the planetary crisis and opening to it? What? How could you summarize what that journey's been like with for you? I might not put this bit in the podcast actually, but um, um... <laughs> yeah. <I> just... <laughs> Well, I think it, it started when I was 21 and I went to, um, and I was very interested in those early days uh, in earth-based religion. So I was raised Catholic and it didn't work for me at all. And I started exploring more earth-based religions when I was in my late teens. So things like paganism and then shamanic work. Nice. And I went up to Fintorn, which is this community up in Scotland, which is kind of an intentional living community. And I did some shamanic courses there and non-psychedelic. Yeah, I'd love to go there one day. I've never been. But... It's an interesting place. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting place. Um, and I learned quite a bit about myself and about what it means to live in community and what I would be comfortable with and not in terms of structures of yeah. people. I'm, I'm a bit more of a peripheral kind of person, I think, in many ways. Anyway, as part of that, I ended up going to the Amazon to volunteer for this um, five-week... Actually, it was, it was four weeks. The program was four weeks in the middle of the Amazon Basin in Ecuador. And um, I went by myself and it was to um, lend my, f my physical skills, just be a body and help in the sustainability movement there. There was a place where they were working with was local people working to regenerate soil and to educate people about how better to have sustainable living within the Amazon basin in the forest. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I was already kind of interested. And then while I was there, the fourth week that I was there, um, I was invited to partake in an ayahuasca ceremony, which I didn't, you know, I hadn't really heard of it before. I'd had a bit of experience with, um, with magic mushrooms, which had been very lovely. And, um, and I thought, well, why not? And so I did. And it was a really, it was a really profound experience. And I remember at that point, there was a particular moment of the experience at the beginning where I remember thinking, I can either surrender or this is going to be one hell of a fight. And I remember just thinking, I'm just going to let go. 
And I did. And it was extraordinary. And I was, yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. And I remember coming back to London afterwards, after this experience out in the jungle and um, feeling the sense of suffocation of concrete over the, the earth. It was a very physical response, which I hadn't anticipated. And I was really quite low for two weeks afterwards, going back to London, you know, leafy northern London suburban area with a big garden. Um, and I did a whole art project on it. I was, I was in art school at the time. And over time, of course, I got used to being back in that environment and my sensitivity dropped. Um, but then more recently, I found myself getting called back in that direction. And I think part of it's to do with coming out to Barcelona, where I'm doing a lot more art, I'm doing yeah. much more music, and so I'm getting connected again with the feeling side of things. And then also just um, being curious. I think if you're someone who's curious and you, you're asking questions about life, at some point you're gonna hit the big questions and you're gonna hit the big traumas. And I think this is a big trauma. Um, yeah, so yeah. that's kind of, and so recently reading this stuff, I've, I've realized that if I really want to do anything, I have to feel it first. And I think that grief can be a gateway to love and we can't change anything unless we're willing to fight for what we love. And I get very emotional every time I talk about it, but that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, so now it's like, okay, <laughs> how do I find a way to feel the grief, not get overwhelmed by it, and also enjoy the things, like simple things, like avocado toast, which sounds ridiculous, or I don't know, sitting under a tree and it being a beautiful day and I don't have to worry about my safety. You know, just there creates like this nostalgia, um, a preemptive nostalgia for, for the things that I enjoy every day, which makes it bittersweet, but also very alive, but means that I'm almost constantly on the verge of tears. And this has been like this for weeks now. And so I'm not really sure what to do with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I guess you just got to cry. Just let the tears flow. <laughs> I can't walk around. Uh, well, maybe I can walk around crying. People be like, Nat, what's up? Like, well, just feeling the feels. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I uh, I mean, I feel that too. I'm, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a sensitive person like that too. And yeah, I feel that pressure sometimes of not wanting to or feeling like crying in public you know it's <laughs> you know we have to abide by the norms of uh yeah keeping that private uh and having a yeah a good good happy face in public but uh yeah but i think that's like the most one of the most beautiful things we can do if we can just i don't know Maybe it'll impact some other person positively. Who knows if they see us crying and being alive and being real, maybe inspire them to think, yeah, I can, I can be real too. I don't know. It's just a thought. I like that thought. It's funny. I had a moment today with, um, I was talking with one of my very dear friends with whom I, I talk about this a lot and we go down the darkest avenues together. And I think having a companion with whom one can do that is really important. And I was chatting with him and I was saying to him, he's like, oh, so how's it been back this, this week back at school? I was like, I don't know, I'm just standing there. I'm just thinking, what the fuck am I doing? Maybe I should just retrain and do something else. And then just then another one of my friends walks past. She's like, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And then it just unlocked this whole conversation. And I think even if we don't all jump ship and become, I don't know, uh -huh. family constellation counsellors or whatever it's going to be, that even just the question of, I think maybe it's a quality of attention that one brings in or the realness that you're saying about not having to put on one's happy face and just say, actually, 
I'm actually just going to be real. And then it gives other people permission. Maybe that's yeah. enough in the day to day. I don't know. Yeah, I'm still practicing that myself, but that's a, that's like another, I don't know, potential gift that this crisis offers us. It makes it a lot harder to, to keep up the facade of, mm. you know, our individualized lives and, and in some ways easier to, to break through that. Mm. Uh, and, but yeah, I mean, how we do that in practice, like in the context of, I don't know sitting on a sitting on the subway and with a bunch of other people just in their own heads and mm. not not communicating to each other can you break through that in practice thank you for listening to the hive podcast with me natalie nahai to find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash the hive podcast And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.